Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. The state's Supreme Court is considering the constitutionality of Washington State's capital gains tax. Let's go to our tax whisperer, Ken Williams of CLA. And you watched the hearing. What did you think? It was uh, fascinating for somebody in my profession. Uh, lots of arguments, uh, great questions and commentary from both sides. And they covered a wide range of, of topics and aspects of the law that probably aren't of interest to most folks, but fascinating to us. But at the end of it, I don't think even the justices know, know which way they're going to rule yet. Really? I mean, the issue here, well, first of all, let's outline what this capital gains tax would do. Who would be affected by it? Yeah, so the law was enacted and effective for 2022. So it applies to transactions in 2022 and forward. And it is targeting transactions that result in long-term capital gains uh, within Washington or for Washington residents. So it taxes, it applies a 7% tax to long-term capital gains in excess of $250,000 per person beginning in 2022. So per person per year? Per person per year. Or if married uh, or filing jointly or separately, 250000 per couple. Okay. And this is on top of whatever federal capital gains tax you would pay, correct? That's right. That's right. This was an attempt for Washington to get a source of revenue from the high end of the, the income spectrum instead of the low end of the income spectrum, which was kind of what the state has been criticized for in the past. But it is for the state. It doesn't go to the feds. This is, uh, the, though the state argues strenuously, this is not an income tax. Um, it's probably the closest thing to an income tax we could imagine. Right. And that's the issue here, because our state constitution says that income, you cannot apply a progressive tax to uh, income, and it can't be over 1% if you apply it to uh, property, correct? Yeah, that, that's right. There are several aspects of the case, and that's one of the big ones, is if it is an income tax, it's de facto unconstitutional. The state would argue that, no, it's not an income tax, it's an excise tax. It's a tax on the transaction. You, you sound like the Supreme Court itself didn't really know where to go with this. And it's it's difficult because, I mean, what really is... The difference between money that comes from one place or money that comes from another place. Yeah, it's. I imagine that each of the justices has their own view of this, and trying to get nine people to agree on anything is difficult in the best of situations. But there is also a lot of legal complexity to definitions of things and what is what is property, what is income, and how do they apply those rules and how do those rules conflict with the provisions in the state constitution. So we know we have a property tax, which is non-controversial. We we all pay it. So the issue then is whether income that you that you get through capital gains applies as a property tax or or an income tax. So can you explain what the difference is, whether I'm wealthy because I own property or wealthy because I have money? What's the difference? Right. That gets you're getting right to the the crux of the case. The there's old rulings and law that stipulate that income is considered property. And so if it is considered property, then those rules regarding limitation on the uniformity of the tax and and so forth apply. The state is arguing that 
it's not the that they're not taxing income they're taxing a transaction similar to if you sell real estate in the state there's a real estate excise tax mm-hmm. that excise tax is on the transaction it's not on the value of the real estate like real estate taxes that we pay each year but it's an excise tax on the sale of that property and that that's what they're taxing the 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 argument is that but if that is actually determined based on the income, uh, then it sure sounds like an income tax. So, Ken, as a tax expert and having having heard all these arguments, what's your gut feeling? Does the capital gains tax survive or not? Going into it, on the face of it, you'd say, well, boy, sure looks like an income tax, acts like an income tax. It, it shouldn't stand the light of day in court. But when you start to hear the arguments, uh, you start to understand that there's a reason why lawyers are involved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, like I say, I listen to the arguments. I listen to the questions from the justices. And I think that they've got their work cut out for us. I wouldn't want to be placing bets on either side of this right now. Uh, we're a little frustrated because this tax uh, requires filing on April 18th of, of this year for gains last year. Mm-hmm. And so people are going to have to remit those funds. And there's no indication that we're going to have a ruling by then. So the state has said, well, pay the tax. And if it is ruled unconstitutional, we'll send your money back plus interest. Wow. So you have clients who are preparing to pay this right now, huh? Yeah, we're, we're waiting to see. We listened to the arguments to see if that gave us any reading of what might happen. But we're at least advising them to have the, the funds held in reserve in case they need to pay that money by April 18th. And Department of Revenue has already been authorized to begin the process of collecting that tax. As of this morning, there's no way to actually go online and file the return. But by April 18th, they're supposed to have it up and running. So they'll be happy to take your money. That's our tax whisperer. Ken Williams, tax specialist with CLA. Ken, thank you. My pleasure, Dave. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. All over the map with our resident historian, Felix Bunnell. His quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, an unusual structure in Kent, built more than 40 years ago, may be a one-of-a-kind prototype for a futuristic parking garage. A parking garage, Felix? I know, I know. It's almost like something from the Jetsons. The story comes from our friends over at the King County Historic Preservation Program. Now, the location is the Kent Valley. It's some industrial property just off East Valley Highway on South 266th Street. Now, some of the details are a little sketchy, but what we're talking about, it's a squat, cylinder-shaped concrete structure from around 1980. It's got to be one of the most futuristic-looking buildings in King County. I'd put it right up there with the Space Needle, in my humble (laughs) professional opinion. Now, what it's believed to be is a prototype for an automated parking garage, a big mechanized computer-controlled facility which maximizes storage space and minimizes the footprint and human factor in parking cars. The brand name they came up with 40 years ago was Park and Space. Todd Scott is a historic preservation architect and planner for King County and for Kent and other suburban cities. He told me how the park and space would have worked. So cars could drive into the circular core underneath and they would be raised up to the larger circular floor on the second floor and sort of put into spaces that, that radiated around that central core. 
it was almost like a vending machine for cars, you know. I mean, we've seen those in modern ads today, you know, where you go buy a car and the vending machine pops it out for you, you know. But this was a, a little bit different in that it was a vending machine for you parking your car. Oh, it's like one of those uh, yeah, Caravana car dispensers. Exactly, but designed here in the Northwest and more than 40 years ago. Now, the prototype's only one level, right? But newspaper clippings from 40 years ago show a version that's 20 stories tall, space for 10 cars on each level for a total of 200. And rather than a vending machine. For me, it almost looks like a railroad roundhouse on several levels, combined with a jukebox or maybe one of those old stereo console <laughs> record changers. Yeah. Now, our good friend Lee Corbin did some deep dive research. He came up with the patent drawings from 1981. Now, credit for the design goes to two local guys, a guy named Frank Ives of Kent and Albert Sourwine of Seattle. Um, 40 years ago, the company claimed their automated design, you know, it didn't require ramps since an elevator did all the lifting. So it took up five times less real estate than a conventional garage to store the same number of cars. Now, there were other designs by other companies, but the parking space was different in how it lifted and moved the cars. The patent kind of details how their mechanism only came into contact with the tires. It certainly would adjust to the size of the the, uh, wheel span, Mm -hmm. and then it never touched any metal surfaces, so it couldn't damage the car. Now, one thing, I'm just, in looking at it, I kind of thought about it. it. Must be There must be times when you'd have to wait for a really long time. I would think so, yeah. Because there's one elevator, and it's like people ahead of you are on the 19th, 18th, and 17th floor. Yeah. That elevator going up and down is going to take a long time. You know, the, the King County Historic Preservation Program, they don't know as much about this as they'd like to. So if anyone out there remembers this from 40 years ago or has any additional details, we've got photos at my Northwest, and my contact information is there, and I'd love to sort of help solve the mystery of the uh, automated parking structure. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. 647 Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And 11 miles above Montana is a visiting balloon from China. What is it? Let's go to CBS News military analyst and retired Army Colonel Jeff McCausland. Jeff, this morning the Chinese government uh, apologized, saying this was a weather balloon gone astray. Do you buy that? Well, I'm not quite sure if the weather balloon going astray. We'll have to find that out. But I think this may just be a colossal screw-up on the part of the Chinese. And they've already announced their regret for this particular incident happening. And that's pretty extraordinary for the Chinese to publicly announce regret for a mistake. Obviously, that plays out not only in the international community, but plays out in the domestic community. And it certainly seemed to me that this might just be a screw-up because, of course, the next day or so, Secretary of State Blinken was scheduled to fly to Beijing to meet with his counterpart some effort to at least try to find a bottom of the relations between the United States and China and not raise tensions. And so for this to happen at this particular moment is is pretty inopportune. Why would the Pentagon not shoot it down? Just get rid of it, eliminate all possibility that it could be spying? Well, I think for two reasons. One, it, it did not pose any physical threat to America. It was flying at an altitude way above what commercial air traffic flies through. So it didn't pose a threat there, number one. Uh, shooting it down might pose a threat because, of course, then all this stuff comes down and you don't know where it's going to land. And that's why when the president, apparently, his first reaction was to shoot it down, uh, the Pentagon demurred and, and convinced him that that was not a good idea. That being said, the Pentagon has also said we, we've taken actions to basically uh, you know, neutralize its ability to conduct surveillance or words to that effect. And that translates to me that we've done either cyber and or electronic warfare efforts to blind the cameras, uh, to uh, eliminate any possibility of conducting transmissions and, and pretty much neutralize it. I would figure that the first thing they would do would be to, yeah, send every electronic beam they have 
uh, at this thing and also try to pick up any transmissions that it was making. I have right. to ask you something else. I was talking to a guy what, last week who's a specialist at the University of Washington with uh, uh, these quantum computers. He was telling me about the incredible power they have, that they can basically decrypt any kind of encryption. You think the Pentagon already has one of these things and is actively using it now to essentially track things like this? Well, I certainly hope so, but one of the questions I'd like to know, Dave, is did we not pick this thing up till it got over Montana? I mean, uh, apparently now they're saying, well, it passed over the Aleutian Islands. must have been launched, I guess, from northwestern China. Yeah. And I'm guessing now, but if that's the case, if NORAD doesn't pick it up till it gets to Montana, mm-hmm. I mean, it's already gone over Alaska, gone over a good part well, of Well, no, you really – I'm convinced. I mean, you know the capability of the military. I bet they picked yeah. this thing up from the moment it took off, don't you think? I would, I would certainly hope so, and if that, but if that had been the case, then you might have you might have shot it down somewhere over the the, uh, the the Arctic Sea over there around the Aleutian Islands where it could harmlessly land up in the water. Mm. Well, see, my theory is that they they just let these things go because they they've got them tracked. They they know exactly what it is they're transmitting because they figured out all the encryption, and they know that most Americans that the Americans will report it as a flying saucer, and it will be discredited. Nobody will believe it. Wow, you've really and, thought this yeah. through. Absolutely. And, 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 that's, and, and that explains this all this stuff. Yeah. Dave, this is a novel. This is a novel you've got right here. Um, <laughs> I know. Yeah, you have a lot of belief in the capabilities. Yes, I, and, I do. And, you know, of course, if you get into that kind of stuff, Dave, of course you can say that there are counterintelligence assets that you can give us. Where Absolutely. is the data going to? So we can identify where... Well, that's what I was thinking. Right. I'm thinking, yeah. so we've got their encryption. We could basically impersonate their signals, plant some kind yeah. of tagged information, and see where right. that ends up in the Chinese system right. and know exactly what they what they have and, and who's uh, who's got it. Now, I have to admit, I'm not an electronic warfare specialist, so I can't testify to that, but that's certainly what I understand about some capabilities that are at least being developed, that's certainly possible. But in this particular case, uh, the other thing the Pentagon has said a couple of times is that this has happened before, yeah. that the Chinese. Uh, and in terms of surveillance, it was always my firm belief, from what I knew, that, frankly, Chinese satellites could accomplish the surveillance activity. Sure. So using a balloon like this just doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. Well, yeah, I mean, and the idea that this was trying to scope out the uh, the Montana, uh, what they, they have Minuteman ICBM. missiles there or ICBMs, yeah. I mean, we yeah. that, that's no secret. In fact, we want people to know we have them. That's the whole purpose of deterrence, isn't it? Yeah, that's true, but keep, keep in mind a couple of things. We are, we are increasingly concerned. I always point to people, uh, the, uh, the example of the B-2 versus the B-22. Mm-hmm. When these two bombers were rolled out, the B-2 was rolled out, in the early 2000s, and, and when the first one was rolled out, oh, we, we rolled it out on the tarmac. We had it out there so everybody could look at this thing. It was terrific. Uh, when the Air Force a few weeks ago rolled out the new B-22 bomber, uh, they didn't roll it out on the tarmac. It was kept, kept in the hangar. Hmm. They had to go inside to look at it, and most people suggested that was because of overflight surveillance, particularly by satellites, right. and we didn't want to provide that information. So, you know, that, that ability has certainly improved. The other thing I'd like to know, but the Pentagon will never tell, was there something going on? Were we doing some kind of an exercise that might lend some credence to this balloon, which can dwell a little longer over a particular area than a satellite can, that they might have been conducting surveillance of an exercise? Don't know, but that's the only rationale I could think of why a balloon might be more useful than a satellite. 
CBS News military analyst, retired Army Colonel Jeff McCausland. Thank you, Jeff. Take care. Margaret Brennan joins us from Face the Nation on Fridays. And before we look ahead, I wanted to ask her about last Sunday when she went a few rounds with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. She wanted to know why he was putting election deniers on important House committees. They were in power last Congress. So why? why? You're talking about questions from 2000. But but you're asking me about questions that happened to another Congress. You're actually about questions for another Congress. So the only thing I'm simply talking about. These are members who just got elected by their constituents. I want to know if she thought you would ever get a straight answer. I did want to hear his explanation for it um, because it seems to be uh, a feature, not a bug, um, given just the numbers that we've looked through. There's a very high number of um, people who have been reelected to this new Congress in the House who do qualify as election deniers under the CBS standards for um, that. And so, you know, if the message from the midterms was move on and uh, to not talk about some of these things, then why is it the case that that is who is being elevated within the party? Um, so Speaker McCarthy's uh, response was, well, kind of dismissive of it, just saying, well, this is maybe the only chance they have to to raise general questions about the election and then turn towards Democrats who in past elections have um, said things, whether it was about 2016 and Hillary Clinton or John Kerry. So um, I think the issue that I like to focus on here, because I think it is something of deep concern to the country, is this loss of faith in institutions. So undermining it, I think, is worthy of discussing. Are they going to uh, push any particular election security bills in this session? At this point, I wouldn't expect a lot of bills, period, or or at least bills likely to become law. Um, This is a split Congress uh, with Republican control in the House, uh, as we've talked about, with a very slim majority, which means that um, some of the more uh, conservative members have an outsized uh, ability to influence things. Um, And in the Senate, it's a very narrow Democratic majority. Um, So I wouldn't expect a lot of legislating on anything. On anything? What about the budget? I thought that that McCarthy was calling for regular order, which means you you write a budget, you send it to all the committees, and uh, you you come to some sort of compromise on how much money the government should spend and where to spend it. Is any work towards that going on now? Well, the White House doesn't issue its budget until sometime in the month of March, so no. Um, Speaker McCarthy said that he would like for Democrats and Republicans to work together to come up with a budget, uh, a return to regular order. As you mentioned, he asked for his uh, Democratic colleague in the Senate, the leader there, Chuck Schumer, um, to work with him on that. But uh, as you know, even when Democrats had the majority, um, the things that were happening were more along the lines of these huge spending bills uh, rather than um, uh, a compromise budget. I see you have a a group of Freshman House members on Face the Nation this weekend, two Republicans, uh, two Democrats. Is this the new wave? Are these uh, young and vigorous members who are determined to work together for the good of the country? Well, you know, I mean, given the um, low uh, approval rating of not just people in our line of work, journalists, but low approval rating of Congress, 
you do have to wonder what motivates people to run for office these days. And that's what fascinates me about these new members, particularly at a time when um, that's an increased threat environment. There are more than 7,500 threats against lawmakers in, in the past year. What makes someone decide to run? So we talked to them about that and what's possible here. And I think you will get a flavor <laughs> of some of the disagreements that are, are going to be playing out over the next two years. Margaret Brennan, moderator of Face the Nation. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. A shelter in Tennessee went above and beyond to reunite a dog with its owner. The owner surrendered her due to challenges she was facing being unhoused. CBS's Caitlin O'Kane has the story for The Uplift. The note, please love me. My mom can't keep me and is homeless with two kids. She tried her best but can't get help. I cost too much for her. She really loves me, and I'm a great dog. It is one of the saddest things I've ever read. (laughs) The last line is what really hit us all here was, please don't abuse me. Um, When you looked at Leela, you could tell right away that she was very well cared for and definitely loved. Um, That was definitely the truth. Unfortunately, many dogs dropped off at shelters don't come with notes. So the staff was glad Lilo came with a clue about her family. A shelter is not the same as a home. So at the end of the day, we'd rather you keep your pet um, and we're able to do whatever we can to make sure that that happens. The shelter staff posted about Lilo on social media, hoping to connect with her owner. Soon, they got a call from someone saying they were Lilo's mom. It was a wonderful reunion. It was very clear when Lilo entered the room that that was definitely her family. (laughs) Everyone was extremely happy. There was not a dry eye in the room. (laughs) Um, The kids were also just as um, excited and emotional as everyone else. While centers like McCammy provide shelter for dogs, they also provide resources for families who love their pets but might not be able to keep them due to cost. For this family, we are working with some local agencies in town to help find them pet-friendly shelter. Uh, For other families, we've now established a new fund uh, called the Mac Cares Fund, where we will be able to help families, whether that's paying for a pet deposit at an apartment complex, uh, providing food, resources, anything like that to just try and keep them together. The goal of animal shelters is to keep dogs like Lilo happy and safe. And sometimes that means going above and beyond to reunite them with the family that loves them. You've got to see this dog, too. Yeah. Just the cutest thing. Adorable. Just, just the perky ears and fluffy and just kind of like, hey, guys, where's my owner? Mm-hmm. And the picture of them reuniting is so cute. So I love that. Seven forty-eight. See how morning news. We were just trying to now, convince Dave to put on some of G's necklaces. Uh, it's just completely alien to me. Is that like real? Real or, diamonds? Oh, oh, real gold? Yes, that's actual. Come on now, really? Uh, yes, sir. Have you met G? Yeah, y- yes, sir. I have. It's just that you know, usually don't you keep that stuff in a safe or something it's around his neck that's pretty safe here's a question how often do you see me wear this i i don't know i brought brought this in so i could put it around your neck and take a picture of you (laughs) (laughs) do you have the tooth thing too Uh oh yeah ask him to smile big for you that's the the shiny tooth yeah look that is amazing got a little bling in your mouth do you want to talk about the uh china balloon 
Oh, you, you mean now that everybody's experts on what to do now yeah. with the balloon that yeah. that they thought was Kevin Costner in Yellowstone in Montana? What? Because we know exactly where it started. Like, oh, go ahead. You set it up and then I'll go into it. Well, I mean, the balloon appears over Montana and people start taking video pictures of it. And mm-hmm. then uh, it turns out the Defense Department's been tracking it and it came from China. So, yes, we think it's a spy balloon. I, I think it possibly could be, too. Right. Yeah. However... What I do know is this, um, as far as everybody sitting back, well, this is what you should do. And I'm, I'm looking on Twitter and you're seeing one side of the coin say, y'all, you need to shoot down the balloon. No, you don't. Uh, see, I <laughs> thought we should. Shoot down the balloon? Yeah, it's over Montana. No harm, no foul. <laughs> Why would you let a Chinese spy balloon just drift over the U.S.? Wait, are you are you being serious? Take that sucker down. I think yeah. she's being serious. I am being serious. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I don't think that's a good idea. I do think potentially it could be a spy plane, like oop, oopsies type deal. Uh, it's a coincidence that they're getting ready to meet. Secretary of State's getting ready to meet in like a week they with the China it. president. It. Oh, did they cancel that? No, yeah. they canceled it. Fast-paced developing story, yeah. G. you got to keep uh, up. My, my bad. My yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah. I okay. think it's a spy balloon. Uh, I think it possibly could, too. No, but, it, the Pentagon says it's Chinese spot. And then the Chinese government, they were like, oh, no, we apologize. It's a civilian project. Yeah, yeah, and, we, we couldn't steer it. Yeah, and, yeah. You know. Now, I'll say this. How do we know, really, when the United States picked up this balloon? Now, they say Montana. I think with all of the money that the United States has invested in defense of our country, I like to think that they did not pick up this balloon until Montana. They now the response, the response, the way the United States is doing things. Who knows why China has done this? Right. If it is a spy plane, which it could be. Let's see how the United States responds. Let's see what they do. When do they actually pick it up? Do they pick it up in Montana? And by the way, the United States is doing a great job. We're not going to let you know when we saw the balloon. Right. You know, like, oh, oopsie, uh, there's something here in Montana. And then the Chinese try- write it down. Oh, so they didn't figure it out until it got to Montana. I've already shared my theory, but I'll share it with you because you, you apparently didn't hear it. What do you got? Um, this is this is why there are so many UFO sightings. The Pentagon's been ignoring these balloons for years, and they're happy for people to think they're UFOs and that we don't know what they are. But I I guarantee you, the Pentagon knew from the moment this thing reached an altitude of let's say twenty feet that it was coming from China, that it was headed here. They've already been decoding all the telemetry from it. They know exactly what it is, and they've been feeding it phony information. Yep. I believe I, 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 I believe that. And I just it, want to nip that in the bud. Just shoot it down. <laughs> Colleen, I can't believe you're really serious about this. Why? I, why would you want to shoot that thing down? Just get rid of it. I mean, but you, you're not afraid of things escalating from there? No, not if it's a civilian weather balloon. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think shooting shooting it down is is a good idea. I, I'm shocked. It's in our airspace. We can do what we want with it. Yeah. She's she's tough. She's they law would and order. shoot down a she's plane if it here. entered our our airspace. I don't think we do that. I mean, if it no. posed a threat to us, yeah. well, if it was absolutely. A, if it was a bomber, we yeah. didn't we'd intercept it and gently guide it back over the ocean. I don't think we'd shoot it. Interesting. Well, All right. in I the guess words, I'm a little more intense than you guys. In the words of Marjorie Taylor, I mean, um, <laughs> excuse me. In the words of Michelle Did Obama, you just compare me <laughs> no, no, to no, no, Marjorie no, 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 Taylor. No, 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 no. Hear me out. 
It was a mistake. Was a mistake. I misspoke. Okay. okay. In the words of Michelle Obama. How'd you get those better. two mixed up? When they go low, <laughs> we go high. We go high. For sure, I can yeah. go high. Yeah. How did I get that mixed up? I don't know. <laughs> it's early in the morning. God. I thought we were about to fight, G. <laughs> Snatch that necklace yeah. right off your neck. Uh, I was again, about to duck under the table. When it, yeah. when it, again, when it comes to technology, when it comes to everything that our government has to, we, the American citizens, we don't even know. No. What our defense has. And I like what you just said, you know, feeding it false information, seeing it come. And then all of a sudden you can't deny it. We, the U.S. citizens know that's not a UFO. That is a balloon. Oh. And the United States sit back like, ah, dang it. You boys in your games. I swear. Dang it. You guys just want to play games all the time. No, just no, I'm get just, it done. I'm just glad Colleen, Colleen is the new Beth Dutton. That's what happened. Beth Dutton, if Colleen was in Montana, and all the Yellowstone folks out there oh, is listening to me right character. now, oh. Beth Dutton would have pulled out a gun and Absolutely. shot the balloon. My husband doesn't believe me that we could go homestead in Montana. He's like, you would hate it. I said, I would love it. No, you would I not. I feel like I've got a Yellowstone character in me that's ready to come out. <laughs> wow. Okay, Beth. Well. All right, G. <laughs> you go ahead and test me. I, I just I, I want you guys to know that I've never seen this side of Colleen today. Oh, so boy, I grew up in Marysville. <laughs> do you call, do you call yeah. it Deville? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough neighborhood up there. <laughs> G Scott, nine o'clock with Ursula. This is Seattle's morning news. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. Can this man save democracy? Dr. Richard Hawes is, uh, well, a longtime diplomat. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he's also written a book called The Bill of Obligations. This is sort of a companion to the Bill of Rights, The Ten Habits of uh, Good Citizens. Are you, uh, are you really this worried about the future of democracy that it requires uh, instilling better habits in our people? I'm sorry to say, but I am. I've learned in the last few years not to take a lot for granted, not to be sanguine. And it's not just January 6th, but it's the entire political environment that gave rise to January 6th. And it's the political environment that is clearly coming up short more often than not in in addressing the the needs of our, our economy, our society or our political system. So the obligations you list include uh, be informed, get involved, stay open to compromise, remain civil, reject violence, value norms, produce, uh, promote the common good. Respect government service. I want to ask you about that. Mm -hmm. That's the part that really worries me. That um, that for a lot of Americans, the government and and in particular the people who work for it are the enemy. And I mean that to me that's absurd. But but the effect of it is, I think that a lot of good people who might normally want to work from the government might find themselves afraid to do that. And if, we, and if we don't attract the best people to work for the government, then I think we're really in trouble. You're exactly right. We want the best and brightest to go into government. We want government to be better than it, than it is now. Government is not the enemy. Government is us. Tens of millions of Americans work in city, state, and federal government. The military is part of the government. It's on the payroll. So Government does, I think, uh, a great deal that's good. It obviously fails in some cases there. We want to hold it accountable. We want to make it better where we can. 
one of the things I'd like to do is incentivize more people to go into government, maybe to have a government experience. That's why I, I favored national service, not to make it mandatory, but to make it much more attractive than it is. And I think it would also have a byproduct of not just making government uh, more accessible, but also bringing Americans together who right now are so separated by by geography, by class, by education, by religion, by color, you name it, that we have too many Americans who rather than having shared or common experiences have separate experiences, which again, just makes our predicament that much uh, that much worse. And talk a little bit more about uh, putting country first. I, I bristled at first reading that only because, you know, for what four to six years, we've been hearing America first, America first, make America great again. So when I hear put country first, I feel like it can be confused with that message of America first. Fair enough. Uh, First of all, the idea that you have to say put country first is quite remarkable. Uh, one would have thought it was it was pretty automatic that it was one of those things that uh, that didn't need to be said. But what we see are way too many examples of people putting their own ambitions or their their party first. And what I want are people to to be genuinely patriotic. Uh, I thought what we recently saw with some of the people responsible for elections, some of the secretaries of state in the various states showed remarkable uh, commitment to this country. Uh, Liz Cheney, whether you agree with her or disagree with her on many of her policies, I thought what she did was a perfect example of putting country first. JFK, you know, the book Profiles and Courage, is all about various senators who either by their willingness to embrace an unpopular compromise or to stand up for principle against the against the majority when standing up for principle was necessary, he those are all examples of uh, of putting country first. So it's nothing to do with the uh, recent or the pre World War II uh, America first, but it's all about what I think is a, is a genuine patriotism as opposed to a faux patriotism. Mm. The anger that we see among uh, Americans. What what is that rooted in? Is that a recent phenomenon? I go. I remember. I mean, Oklahoma City. That to me was the the pinnacle of um, the reaction against government, and and, and it caused uh, actually a, a backlash in uh, of support for government uh, employees. Are we back to those days again? To some extent, yes. I think the anger is in part a, f- a reflection that many people's objective circumstances have not improved or have gotten worse. If one looks at stagnation of, of wages, growing inequality and the like, I also think that a lot of people are in various uh, what I would call uh, in, in the world of narrow casting and whether they're listening to certain uh, cable channels or radio stations or they're involved in this or that social media site, they're getting a steady diet of misinformation or clearly biased or imbalanced information. And what it's doing is fanning whatever grievances or resentments they may have. All of this at the same time, they often aren't aware of the many good things that have happened historically or still happening are still happening now. So, you know, it, but that's but you're right. And that's why populism, by the way, is as strong as it is. Populism feeds off grievance. It's a sense that what exists is not delivering and people are willing to throw out the baby with with the bathwater. And my argument is simply that's an extraordinarily mistaken and misguided choice. Dr. Richard Haas, who is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of The Bill of Obligations, Ten Habits of Good Citizens. Richard, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.